This is the John Oakley Show podcast. And away we go. It's that time in the program where we drill down on topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville, pound 3636. And joining us in-house, Mike Van Solen, Principal at Navigator. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, John. And uh, what a fantastic spring day for Talk Radio. Thank you for that. Kim Wright is a principal at Wright Strategies. Good to have you here. Happy Monday. And to you. And Adrian Batra joins us today on the phone, the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun. How's Adrian? I'm doing well, thanks. I apologize for not being there in person with all of you. All right. But in spirit, uh, we know where I'm you are. I'm always there in spirit. You yeah. are. Let me start with the big story on the weekend, this Mueller report, and just watching how the media has been uh, sort of trying to unpack this, depending on uh, which channel or cable uh, outlet you're watching. I mean, uh, you might think you're living in a parallel universe or something like that. But uh, let me ask, first of all, around the horn in general terms, will the Mueller report change anything or just play into confirmation bias? Mike? No, look, I, I do think it's going to change something because the those opposed to the president have built up Mueller and his credibility for two years. They have bought into the idea that there was collusion um, I get the obstruction of justice uh, pieces. We'll we'll fight about that, but it has to change things. And and I think media outlets have been uh, so over their skis on this topic and and convinced that they knew what the final outcome would be, uh, and uh, and and it's just not what they they had bet on. And I think the Democrats themselves, who have been betting their whole campaign on just uh, being anti-Trump might have to think about what their policies are going to be going forward as well, because I do think it does change things. It will still be a divided Congress, and they'll still be throwing haymakers at each other whenever they can, uh, but it definitely changes the game. All right. Uh, Kim, do you think it changes the game? So you've seen some people saying it's not going to be about impeachment. We're not. We're moving away from that, all of that. And Nancy Pelosi has been signaling that for a few weeks now. But I think what is fascinating about all of this, if you go back to Whitewater and the Ken Starr uh, Clinton saga, uh, in the end, it wasn't really about the, the Whitewater and the legal dealings. All of what people remember was Monica Lewinsky, the dress, and how that played into an obstruction of justice component. What I think will be interesting will be whether or not we see the full Mueller report, the way Ken Starr had done it, where he had sent it copies to everyone, hither and yon. I find that fascinating that uh, given that we're in a WikiLeaks situation and that's how we kind of got here was this whole you know, dark web, WikiLeaks, all of that. But somebody hasn't leaked this whole report as of yet, but I suspect it will be coming soon. Sure. All right. But uh, collusion is something that was uh, unequivocally renounced by uh, by Mueller and, of course, the Attorney General William Barr when he synopsized it in his letter, four-page letter on the weekend. Really? So, the Attorney General appointed at the pleasure of the president wasn't going to say his boss was terrible? I, you know, look, He knows his words will be held up against that report uh, one day Absolutely, because so. that report is going to be released. It will absolutely come out, and I think that's an important element to all of this. But, you know, uh, Adrian, then, okay, but to Kim's point, it's interesting because she says, well, look, uh, if you look back at the Ken Starr and investigation of 20 plus years ago it was one of those things that sort of spiraled in a different direction as is the case with this Mueller report Russian collusion I mean that was sort of forgotten even though many to your point Mike Van Solen uh, I'm looking at Dems in the House of Representatives Swalwell and uh, Schiff and I mean you even had Clapper the head of the CIA saying unequivocally there was collusion there's evidence of collusion I mean these guys were on panels coming out the yin-yang on CNN They've got to eat some serious crow today, don't they? 
Well, I would think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched a, uh, a highlight on one of the CNN panels. And of course, we know CNN has been pushing this narrative and been, you know, unhelpful by the president's tweets, no question about it. But yesterday, those who have been sort of most vociferous against President Trump were saying this is a good day for the president. He has said from day one, there is no collusion. And the Mueller report does indicate that um, the Russians did try to come to those in the Trump campaign and they said no. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot of sort of threads that we can pull out here, but there have been people that have been indicted in, in, in the periphery because of this. There's, there's no, I'm not discounting any of that. And Mueller did have, some would argue, a restricted sort of uh, parameters. Um, in ter- so it wouldn't become as unruly as Ken Starrs did, for example. Right, but so, it also uh, went down various rabbit holes. I mean, uh, when you think of the things that uh, Cohen was indicted for, or Michael Flynn lying to the FBI, I mean, all of this stuff, perjury traps. Perjury, well, Manafort why, going why, to jail. Well, Manafort predates Trump by about 10 years. It's like fraud. You know, cases yeah. that involve, you know, his... Uh, being a consultant with the uh, government of Ukraine. Correct. So, yeah. I mean, uh, it spirals off madly in all directions. You know, if you really want to drill down on it and be intellectually honest, don't you have to look at the genesis for this whole collusion uh, enterprise to begin with? And that deals with a fake dossier that was bought and paid for by the DNC. And uh, it was propagated and given oxygen by the media, compliant media. I mean, that was under the Trump or the uh, Obama administration. I mean, do we go dig that far and deeply into it? When you start getting into all of these conversations around what did Julian Assange have, uh, Julian Assange have to do with this campaign? What what did we start to see during things like various bots propagating various uh, Trump fake was news? exonerated, exculpated. From well, that. when you start to look at things like PizzaGate, which was a very real thing. Where, that, but that had nothing but, to do with Trump. But that it played into all of those people who were starting to push into all of those nefarious forces that were playing into what was happening during the election campaign and, and frankly, twisting whole conversations around what was going on and all what right, but do what you really conflate things, that? Do you conflate that with collusion? I, I think what would be interesting for me to see will be less around the collusion because I think there is various component pieces to that, but really of the extent in which the obstruction of justice really uh, took hold. I mean, when you start firing FBI directors because you don't like the rabbit holes are going down, it gets pretty dangerous pretty quickly. Well, the FBI director serves at the pleasure of the chief executive, in this case, the president. And by the way, if there was no collusion, then it's predicated, obstructions predicated on what? <laughs> no, exactly. Look, I, I just, th- I think it's, I think it's a, I think media in particular need to really look hard in the mirror today because it's one thing and I get it. I get not liking Trump. There's a, you know, there's a, he just, he doesn't rise to the level that we expect of that office that historically the people who have filled, who have filled that space uh, have risen to. Uh, but that said, when you're a, a journalist uh, who takes your craft seriously, because you don't like someone, you find them classless, uh, you know, a flander, whatever it might be that bugs you about him, you can't allow that to color what are the facts of the matter. And when you, for two years, run story after story about collusion and lay out all the reasons you believe it must be true, and 
really there is proven to be no basis for that for that uh, for that narrative. Um, I think it's you know when we talk when when President Trump it, it hates them when he starts talking about fake news they don't help themselves by buying into this narrative as much as they did for as long as they did without clearly the evidentiary basis to bring that story forward. Well, this uh, is important, but this is an important sidestep as well, though, for the Democrats. If the Democrats are not prepared to present the American people with their vision, their version, their alternatives to it being, well, we just don't like Trump, that's not good enough. And basically guaranteeing him reelection next year. I mean, what the what the Democrats have up on offer right now, even though I, I acknowledge what you said, Kim, with respect to them sort of pivoting away from this, the articles of impeachment, but you still have a lot of these other fringe Democrats who are saying, oh, no, we're still going to impeach. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd, and I think the American people are tired of it because the narrative that the left is pushing of Trump, save for his tweets, save for his personality, save for all those things, the economy is, is in decent shape. Their, bottom, their own personal bottom line is in decent shape. So it's not matching up with this, this um, you know, horribleness of, of how bad of a president this man is. You can personally despise him. You can personally have, have ish take umbrage with whatever he says and tweets. But the fact is, um, American, the American economy is doing is doing pretty damn well, and that's usually where Americans end up voting. All right, but they want to kneecap them. They missed on collusion, but to Kim's point now, they pivoted towards obstruction. That's going to be the note they'll be banging on. Uh, it'll percolate at least until the election. I'm guessing. It, it absolutely will. But what we're actually starting to see, which I think is fascinating, has been some of the uh, some of the folks who are running on the Democratic ticket or potentially Democratic ticket. Uh, in particular, I look to uh, Mayor Pete, and I'm not going to dare try to pronounce his last name, but the mayor of South Bend, he has really caught people's imagination in that he is offering both his really interesting and compelling personal narrative, uh, mayor, uh, former soldier, all of that. And, uh, and, and he is really catching people's imagination because he's not talking about the impeachment side of things. He's actually talking about where his vision uh, is and why he feels it's so important to be the guy. Kim, you know, he's so compelling, we don't even know who the hell you're talking about. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to uh, you're gonna have to watch uh, him on Colbert. I have to say uh-huh. that was probably one of the best uh, answers to why someone wants to be president right. that I've ever seen as a strategist and consultant. Okay. Uh, well, you know, there's a, a whole sea of potential candidates here. I mean, oh, yeah. they don't, I think they're up to 21 or 22 now. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all it, going to matter. What matters now, though, is who can raise money. And right now, there's a lot of people on the Democratic side of the financial ticket that are hanging on to their dollars until they hear if Joe Biden is in or not. Right. And while Biden and uh, I guess it's uh, Bernie Sanders are the two big money raisers. But uh, for now. And, and, the, and there'll be there'll be a dozen star Democrat candidates that have their moment in time, you know, as we as we go along here. So, um, you know, strap in. Uh, the Democratic Party has a big choice to make, whether they're going to go. Uh, and they have, you know, the opposite challenge that the Republicans have. And we saw with Trump getting through the primaries for them is going to be really challenging. There's a there's a big group of people who really want them to pivot left. There's some candidates playing to that. Uh, but I think that will be uh, a real recipe for Trump to absolutely run over uh, the eventual winner if they get someone as radical as some of the folks they're looking at. Right. And if they want to focus on the whole Trump 
something, an obstruction, if they continue to make that the predominant theme, uh, they're dead on arrival. I think most people will want to just move past it. That's my own sense for it. I want to move past it, uh, as a matter of fact. I want to come back and talk about other topics worthy of dis- <laughs> destruction, uh, discussion, <laughs> including uh, Doug Ford. You know, these uh, the poll numbers uh, show his popularity is waning. Why that might be? We'll put to our panel, Adrian Batter, Mike Van Sol, and Kim Wright, in a moment here on The Oakley Show. Global News Radio 640 Toronto. There was no collusion with Russia. Back into it. Topics worthy of discussion. Adrian Batra, Mike Van Solen, Kim Wright. And uh, here's a story. I found this interesting because uh, the posting, a poster company, Dart Insight, uh, I guess about uh, two weeks ago, uh, did an online poll of over 5,400 Canadians as to the approval ratings of the various premiers. And uh, it seems Doug Ford has dropped uh, significantly to a point where the numbers are particularly bad, according to Dart Insight CEO John Wright. Elected last June with a little over 40% of the vote and with 40% approval, it's now at 34%, down four points from the last survey in December. He's actually uh, polling under Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, who may not be long for this world, figuratively speaking. Uh, within two months, there's an election out there, and Jason Kenney's projected to win. But uh, let me start with you, Adrian. I mean, uh, in the media, what's your sense for how this has turned south on Doug Ford, or does this really signify anything? Well, I think it's too far out for us to, to for for us to really, you know, see any massive alarm bells that are going off for the for the government or the premier's team around him that are all ready for the next election. Um, I think it's instructive to to see. The, the numbers and see where they are. And, and in particular with comparison to Rachel Notley, uh, because she is in that, uh, a, a very uh, tough battle for her political future, which I believe she is going to, she's going to lose. But for Premier Ford, I think, you know, people are just remembering a handful of things that really stick out for them and, and, and not necessarily some of the other positive measures that they have moved uh, very quickly on. And I think that's one of the challenges with them having such a long list of um, what they are calling a long accomplishments list since, since you know, being sworn into office. So I, I think... So why would that explain the numbers? Why would that explain the numbers uh, plunging down to 34%, Rachel Notley at 38%? They say even Mike Harris in the depths of the Walkerton fiasco was polling at 38%. Mike Van Solen, any idea why the numbers have dropped? Uh, it doesn't make sense to me, actually. You know, campaign research and Nick Kuvallis just put out a really comprehensive poll last week. It showed that uh, the Doug Ford government would win re-election again uh, today. Um, and further, this this whole re- release sort of seems to trade between approval and support. There's one thing, what do you think of Doug Ford today? And there's a separate question, who would you support in the next election? So I I still believe that they, with their constituents, uh, the PC party is in a really great place. Uh, they do have a long track record of, of accomplishment in the, you know, it hasn't even been a year yet. And I think we would find, uh, you know, we have a liberal party that doesn't have a leader, an NDP leader, a party that uh, continues to flounder in opposition. So I, I do think they would be in a decent spot for re-election. Um, but the the party, if there's anything to this, the party very much is Doug. Like he very much is the brand of the party. So to the extent that there's opposition to some of the moves they make, he tends to wear that a little bit more probably than the party broadly. And that's why I suggest that even if, uh, uh, as he's being a good soldier and fighting on, uh, I think the support for the party is there, even if you know he's taken some personal hits for making some tough decisions. So in other words, he's the lightning rod, and uh, that's reflected in these numbers. If we're to take these numbers meaning anything, Kim, right? Do you? 
Well, there is some meaning to them. And one of the reasons that people are a bit more skittish about what's been happening over at Queen's Park is things like going after children with autism. What do you mean going after? Well, I mean, when you're starting to use them as part of your cuts to hit your targets for budgets and taking a whole bunch of kids off a waiting list and then having to recalibrate and realizing that maybe the means testing wasn't a great idea. And there are an awful lot of people in the Tory base who have been struggling for years about trying to get uh, uh, children to be seen by a, a IBI specialist and then taking more and more resources away from Frankly, these these uh, all right. These but what's the takeaway? Do you think the conservative plan for dealing with autistic children is better or worse than the liberal plan that Kathleen Wynne implemented? So I think that it took far too long, first of all, for Kathleen Wynne to get around to actually fixing this. This became a political issue every election, and it was ridiculous that people continue to play political games with autistic children. Uh, but I think that what we've seen in the last month has been that this particular plan, taking everyone off the wait list, making the means testing, doing all sorts, not having the supports in place in rural and remote communities and really making these children and these families have to take out lines of credit. You had their own parliamentary assistant saying she's going to have to take out a line of credit to be able to pay for her children's all right, therapy. So all, this- all of this boils down to you go after kids with autism, you're going to take a hit in the polls. Okay, wait a minute. So this one specific issue, albeit significant, certainly it, to the families it, involved, is the thing sh- that plunges you I in the it, polls? I think what it does is show that if you're willing to do this, what else are you willing to do? So whatever boogeyman you wanted to attribute to the premier, rightly or wrongly. Well, the reformed education, I mean, hydro uh, rates as well. I mean, well, I mean in, enlarging class sizes uh, to a point that'll be bigger, potentially on uh, bigger than Toronto Council uh, is a bit of a problem uh, in classrooms for sure. We've got all sorts of challenges that the premier look, has look, moved look, forward look. on. And I think that what we what we need to see is a bit more empathy from the premier. But this premier was elected to fix all those years of the overspending and, and Ontarians are still very much on board with that. Yeah, it's on it the autism file, no one seems to be able to get it correct. It's it's difficult, it's emotional. And in and to to Lisa McLeod's credit, the minister responsible, they did recognize some of the uh, deficiencies in their initial plan and they are beginning to recalibrate. All right, hang on to that thought here. Just a moment, uh, we'll come back. I mean, there's also somebody who uh, loomed large in the Conservative Party for a while, but he's now the mayor of Brampton. He's got his own concerns up in his community. Patrick Brown was outraged earlier today on this program. We'll share some thoughts and see how the panel feels about when sex offenders are placed in a community without that community's knowledge, uh, should that uh, change as an MO for the authorities in a moment with Adrian Batra, Mike Van Sol, and Kim Wright. As we head into the home stretch, topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville, pound 3636. At the top of the hour, we'll switch over to the Global News at 6 with Farhan Asser and Alan Carter right now with our panel. Adrian Batra from The Sun, Mike Van Solen from Navigator, Kim Wright from Wright Strategies. We're talking earlier in the program with Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, who is uh, outraged, he said, by the knowledge that there is uh, a pedophile who has uh, since uh, had, uh, I guess, a change of gender identity, whereas before the individual was uh, Matthew Harks out west who had abused a number of girls under the age of eight by his own claim at that time, uh, at least 60, for which uh, he was 
sentenced on three counts. And uh, now Matthew is Madeline Harks, 36 years of age, and living in a halfway house in Brampton, right downtown at Main and Queen Street. And Mayor Brown is livid, saying that this is still in proximity to kids. And even the Peel Regional Police have assured him that Harks is at an elevated risk to reoffend. So when he sent a letter off to Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale, Goodale assured him 99% of offenders do not reoffend. What's the worry? Uh, this is just the way it works with people being committed to halfway houses. How do you see it then, Mike Van Solen? Is this something communities ought to be apprised of before somebody is actually released into their community? I think so. I think uh, when the police themselves would say that they're worried that the person will reoffend, I think the community... Uh, should be given a heads up that they are going to be living in that community. And I, I, all I can imagine is the judicial system has said there's nothing more we can do because of the sentence and we can't hold any longer, so, so we just sort of press on. But um, look, I get it's disconcerting. I think any mayor who cares about uh, his or her uh, constituents would raise a, a flag like this. It's a very difficult uh, situation for a community to find itself in. For parents uh, in that community, I can only un- imagine how they will feel. We all know that there's risks in each and every, every day of our lives as it is. Uh, but to, to know that someone with this sort of background who clearly isn't fully uh, rehabilitated from sort of the challenges of their past uh, is scary. All right. Well, Adrian Batra, I mean, this idea, you know, is not something novel. I'm sure you've dealt with it in uh, your tenure as a media person when communities are outraged, but halfway Mm -hmm. houses do exist. Most times communities or neighbors aren't even aware that that's what they are. Uh, Is that a better protocol, you know, that these people can be be perhaps rehabilitated, reintegrated into communal living uh, if they're not being harassed or being anybody's being notified about their whereabouts? I think the challenge, of course, in a situation like this, John, is that most experts who have uh, tried to work with uh, those that ha- have been pedophiles, they will tell you repeatedly they cannot be, um, like, there's no fixing them. I mean, it's hardwired with them. And so the fact that the police have said themselves they're very concerned about a high risk to reoffend. Um, I, I think this is one of those sorts of situations where they, you, you know, we obviously need some reform in our criminal justice system. I realize it's a separate, separate conversation. But I also look at the other side of this, too, and you don't want to have a situation where there's panic and people are, 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 are um, you know, burning down the house and, 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 then, and then there's other crimes involved. The, there's no good answer here. I will, however, say Mayor Brown was, was right to raise this as, as an issue because the other side of it is if you're doing a communication strategy on this, you find out later on that there's someone here, it's worse. So, uh, I mean, I think we, we, all sorts of issues with this, but bottom line, it's very, very hard to rehabilitate a pedophile, and uh, we're, we'll have another problem on our hands and if, if this person reoffends. All right. Uh, Kim Wright, I mean, notifying a community, uh, does that make sense? Because earlier uh, in the program, when we spoke to our legal expert, uh, Joseph Newberger, he believes that this is uh, something that you shouldn't be notifying the community because it might establish a precedent whereby these people never get a chance at rehabilitation or reintegration. I mean, again, it's, you know, the knife's edge. I'm not sure if there's ever a 100 percent right answer, but that was his. What's yours? There isn't a 100% right answer. And it is a balancing act because what you don't want to see, to Adrian's point, is vigilanteism. 
and that people are taking in matters into their own hands. And we've seen this on a number of occasions. Uh, you know, people who have not only pedophiles being reintegrated into the community, but those who have been suspected pedophiles, clergymen, etc., uh, where communities are taking those matters into their own hands. And I think there's we need to have a broader conversation around uh, how do you how do you deal with this? How do you talk about this? How do you how do you grow from this to make sure that these people a don't reoffend, but also that uh, that it becomes a safe place for people to talk about if they have been assaulted, if they especially children, if they have been uh, assaulted or victimized in some way, that these kids can be able to talk about it uh, in an open and transparent way with their communities. And I think Patrick Brown was completely right to raise this as an issue. Uh, but I think it's a larger learning opportunity and, frankly, a larger conversation to Adrian's point around what do we do with the justice system, not only on pedophiles, but anyone who is coming out of the criminal justice system into into halfway houses. Let me ask you, uh, I mean, for what this uh, matters, I don't know if it does, but the 36-year-old Madeline Harks used to be Matthew Harks when uh, these assaults took place. Mm-hmm. Does that matter that Matthew Harks is now Madeline Harks? Look, I don't know physiologically what that what that means as to where we are in, well, no, in, in the go, terms you of know, their... having victimized young girls under the age of eight. Well, I, I worry. I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I worry just about the the incognito uh, nature of you know this person isn't even recognizable. I, I'm understanding from from the life they lived uh, before. Um, so I just I would. Look, I don't know if I, it's appropriate to worry, but I worry just about their ability to kind of move move around society now as a woman and in the and shadows, be, uh, in, in the shadows a little bit. Uh, but I'm I'm just scared about all of it, and I'm scared for that community up there that we have someone who the police uh, can't even say uh, with confidence is not going to reoffend. But Adrian, a male pedophile is now a female. Does that change the equation at all? Well, I don't think it does um, because women are just as capable of abusing children as men are. Um, yes, there's a lower um, rate of that happening and a r- lower occurrences of that type of crime being perpetrated on children. Um, tends to be, sadly, men, um, more men than, than it is women. But no, I don't think that that uh, changes the, the view or uh, just because the phys- physiology of the individual changed. All right. Let me ask you finally, because uh, there's another story that was before the courts. Omar Cotter had an Alberta judge rule that the war crime sentence uh, has expired. He had been on bail, uh, and which, by the way, effectively stopped or froze his eight-year sentence, which was part of the deal cobbled together to bring him back to Canada out of Gitmo. And uh, so that was basically tossed out the window today because uh, the judge's ruling was effectively his bail conditions were part of the sentence. You know, he couldn't get a passport, couldn't go see his sister living in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, couldn't leave Alberta without uh, being under the recognizance of a parole officer or a surety. And all of that now is waived. He's essentially uh, free to go as he'd like. And uh, this is where some people might see it as problematic because it's in contravention to, let's say, the covenant that we have with the United States, these international agreements, you know, that he serves out his sentence because he was repatriated to Canada under that premise or pretext. Kim Wright, did the judge in Alberta rule correctly? You know, they look at the facts in front of them. They look at what is a, a pre, you know time served and all of that. And it's not just in this case, but in every case. And and you look at this in the the collective of ha, have they 
have they met their conditions? Have they served their time? And and while I don't like when people get an early release or an early parole, I know that it's part of our justice system and it's part of the conversation that if you really are talking about how do we reform our justice system, this is part of it as well. But I, I think at well, he is always in it going to be a controversial figure. I think he's served his time at this point. All right. Well, the Americans may not see it in the same no. light, Mike Van Solen. No, they won't. And, and of course, they're doing what they can to um, uh, the family is looking to bring civil uh, civil suit against him. Look, it just strikes me that he's gotten an easy turn ever since he's gotten back here. He's, he's been given an easy turn by the justice system. I think the eight year sentence was light to begin with. And now that the, the, the last couple of years were able to be done just well on bail and now everything is waived again, the justice system, I think, when ha- when it had a choice whether to hold firm or to, or to go easy has gone easy. And that's a shame because uh, the family of uh, Christopher Spear is still without their father and, and brother and, uh, and, and cousin. So uh, that's a shame. And, uh, and he was guilty of a serious crime, uh, you know, of, of killing a soldier. He participated in terrorism and the building of IEDs, uh, the same type of weapons that were used against Canadian soldiers. So look, I'm not happy to see uh, the, the seemingly easy shake of he's getting from the justice system. And how about you, Adrian Batra? Again, I'll just uh, drill down on this issue that the yeah. deal cobbled together with the Americans was, okay, Stephen Harper brought him back home uh, because he was going to serve out eight years here on Canadian soil, get him out of Gitmo, but he doesn't do the eight. Uh, it's something that was aborted by this judge in Alberta because the judge said, well, bail effectively is the same as jail. Yeah, it's it's, it's a... Not great. I mean, this is, this is a, I agree with both what Kim said and with what Mike said. Uh, this is a situation where we clearly need more reform in, in the justice system because the eight years was, was too light in the first place. And then, you know, he gets ten and a half million dollars from the, on behalf of the taxpayers and he's out buying shopping malls now. Uh, and I think this is one of these, uh, things where long term, the Canadian justice system didn't know how to handle this because this is, this is such a, a an aberration. We haven't had to really had to deal with something like this before, but it is instructive how we look forward. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of people are not going to rest well uh, based on this. Um, not not at the issue that he might reoffend. It's just the it's it's the uh, you know the gut reaction when you hear about his actions. And then uh, to Mike's point about Sergeant Spears' family, uh, they still suffer every day. All right. Well, he's not out of the woods yet because that civil suit filed, I guess, in Utah is asking for something like one hundred and thirty five million dollars. And it could even be because the the threshold for proving culpability in a civil suit is less than it would be in a criminal one. So, as I say, he's not out of the woods, but we're heading out of the woods. We're done for the day. Another great one for talk radio. Want to thank the panel. Adrian Batcher from The Sun, Mike Van Solen from Navigator, Kim Wright from Wright Strategies. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having Great to have you here. Thanks for coming in on the Monday edition. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.